Lost Minds of Fandelver and Acquisitions Incorporated, free for everybody on D&D Beyond. We're going to take a look at Monsters of the Multiverse, which just came out this past week. We are going to do a Kickstarter spotlight for Murder in the Shielding Peaks, and we're going to do a product spotlight for Treacherous Traps, and take a look at more May Patreon questions. I am Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show, in which we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, previews of work that I'm working on in the future, previews of other videos, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So let's start off. There are two free books you can pick up right now on D&D Beyond. This is, so D&D Beyond is now owned by Wizards of the Coast. If you're on D&D Beyond, it is a Wizards of the Coast property. About half of you didn't know that that was the case before, but now it is true. So if you sign up for a D&D Beyond account, or if you already have one, I think it's automatically added to your list if you already have one. But if not, you can go check by going to your Lost Mine of Fandelver link and claim, yeah, sign up and claim your code or, or claim your claim your copy for Lost Mines of Fandelver and Acquisitions Incorporated. Acquisitions Incorporated, I think, is a limited t- uh, a limited time deal. I don't think you're getting Acquisitions Incorporated. I don't think it's going to be free for everybody forever. Right. I think that that is a limited run thing. However, Lost Mine of Fandelver is, I think, free indefinitely. So Lost Mine of Fandelver is the starter set adventure, and they're putting out a new starter set. So it's nice that the old adventure for the old starter set is going to be available to everybody. It is an adventure I highly recommend. I like it very much. I think it's a great starting adventure. And the idea that it is built into all of your D&D Beyond accounts, I think, is a fantastic thing. I will post a link to this in the show notes below, but jump to D&D Beyond. You can uh, access your, you can access and get your free copies of Lost Mine of Fandelver and Acquisitions Incorporated. Sean Merwin, Scott Gray, and Teo Sabadia all worked heavily on Acquisitions Incorporated, three very good friends of mine. Excellent book. Uh, great way to kind of have the characters build businesses and, and guilds and things like that. Fantastic book. Pick it up. It's free. Go get it. No reason not to. Let's talk about Monsters of the Multiverse. So Monsters of the Multiverse is a, an, an odd sort of situation. Wizards of the Coast had two books, Volo's Guide to Monsters and Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, which came out probably God, two or three years ago, three, or, three to four years ago, something like that. I don't remember exactly when they came out. And they were books that had a lot of lore in them and then a lot of monsters in them. They were sort of like a Monster Manual 2 and Monster Manual 3, though kind of with fewer monsters and a lot more focused on lore and layers and things like that. Some of they, they decided so some of the lore was definitely cringy and problematic and they errated it, which chapped the asses of a few people right oh my god they're taking away this lore and if you read it you're like i can kind of understand why the idea that like you want to cannibal people cannibal slave owners and stuff like that was really you know i don't know kind of didn't didn't grab people right so part of it was i think they wanted to fix up some of the lore that they had put out in those books and then they also decided that they're going to pack together both sets of monsters from volo's guide and mordenkainen's tomophos into one book called mordenkainen's monsters of the multiverse it is a great big book it is 288 pages. Okay. So a uh, great big book. And it has all of the monsters for both Tome of Foes and Volo's Guide to Monsters in it. Definitely does not have the amount of lore that existed in Volo's Guide and Morning Kanan's Tome of Foes. 
And they reworked all of the stat blocks for all of the monsters for both of those books in this book. They then put the book out as part of a box set that included Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and Xanathar's Guide earlier this year, about three months ago, which also was like, you know, a lot of got, got people kind of fired up because it's like, is this just a cash grab? Are you making me buy two books I already own in order to get a third? I don't. That's really just monsters. And my recommendation was, and, and I followed my own recommendation, was don't buy it, right? Don't, don't buy, if you already own one or two of the books in that set, there's no point in buying that set. Now, if you didn't own any of those books, it's a really good set, right? And I still agree with that. It's a, it's a good, it's a good set. We'll get into like what it, what it means for people who really don't have that kind of stuff, right? And so now that just that single book is available, you can just go buy that one book and add it to your library. And I did, I picked, I picked up a physical copy. Uh, I, I do get a complimentary copy from D and D beyond because of some work that I did for them uh, a, f- a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And also it was only available in D and D beyond now. That was something else where I was like, I, why would I buy the book earlier and then not have them in D and D beyond, not have those monsters in D and D beyond until now, until May. So, you know, I think it made sense not to pick up the, collector set then or to the, the box set early because certainly didn't for me because like i don't really i use that as sort of a secondary reference i use dnd beyond most of the time so then anyway now it's out so what does it mean well we did a pretty good look at a lot of the monsters that existed in mordekin is Foes back when it came out a lot of people that had the collector's edition looked at the monsters looked at them side by side and compared a bunch uh, there's an, in an earlier version of the lazy dnd talk show we looked at a lot of these so if you want to see more about that you can go back to that episode i will link to that episode in the show notes below so we can take a look at it and you know the, the reality is like yeah they changed them Right. I'm one thing I'm not going to do because there's a million people out there who are really fired up about how they change races. Right. That they have this group of fantastical races, a whole ton of new or a whole ton of races that have been combined together and changed. There's a whole lot of drama that exists about how they changed races, people who don't like how they change races, people that are nitpicking about the specific things that they change with races. And, you know, I, I, I don't either sympathize I don't either agree or disagree because I'm just, it just doesn't matter that much to me. I don't really pay that much attention to it. It doesn't matter that too much to me. I do like separating attribute bonuses from races. I'm, I'm a fan of that. Some people aren't. I am. I'm good with it. That's how I've been running my game for a long time now. I was, I think I was even doing that before Tasha's came out because it's just, it's more, it's, you get a, such a wider variety of character options if you don't have to pick a certain race to fit the class that you want to make. Like why, why do it anyway? So but, but I'll tell you one thing where there was some drama about this that I was like, oh, yeah, I can see why people would be torqued. And that's that Adventurers League immediately said you have to be using the new races, that the old race versions are now out of date. Right. And and you are the, the version. And they said something like DMs, be patient with your players. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of be patient with your players when they come up with the old races and and need to switch to the new ones. Right. But the idea that like within the day the book came out, they're already like, yeah, all your characters that use any of these races are now illegal and you need to go fix them. And then they're like, and we've always done it this way. I remember there was this like, you know, we've always been at war with East Asia sort of bit of description of we've always done it this way well you did it like twice with two races that like nobody ever paid any attention to i think it was like orcs with eberron or something like that they changed they changed a couple of races around and then they're like yeah we've always done it that way and you're like this is like a first time thing it's the first time you get like 30 races that you're changing all in one day the day a new book comes out and you're basically saying everybody's got to go buy that book if you want to have a legal character you know 
I don't know, man. That felt extreme to me. But that's sort of an Adventures League thing. Again, I'm not deep into Adventures League, so it, it doesn't it doesn't bend me. But it certainly has people fired up. It certainly I, I can see reason why it would fire it up. If you immediately say, hey, all these characters you've been playing in Adventures League are now illegal unless you go buy this new $50 book to make them legal or pay for this thing inside D&D Beyond that you didn't pay for before. You know, I, I, I might have I might have scaled that over over a year or so instead of doing it like that very day. But I'm a dungeon master. I'm, a, I'm not a forever DM, but I'm, I'm as they say these days, but I DM far more than I play. So I'm far more interested in really looking at the monsters. And the end result is they have changed the monsters. Are they better? Probably. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't think any. I was talking to some friends of mine where we all looked at a bunch. Nobody could pick one out and be like, oh, that one's way worse. There are some like we, we talked about Bale, right? The Demon Prince Bale. And I don't know how much the Demon Prince matters to people because like when are you going to run bail right so we have bail right and and they still have a lot of lore like there's still a lot of stuff it is definitely like a monster manual and that's i'm going to get into the good parts of this book too before i just go bashing it so they apparently lowered bail's hit points and it's already like obscenely low for a demon prince like 189 hit points is going to get destroyed at, at with a challenge rating 19 challenge rating 19 you know by my math is you know, somewhere in the order of 300 hit points, right? So it's like, a, it's more than a hundred hit points. They lowered, and I know, I know, don't get on me about like, well, it's damage output is, is so high or because it has these other special abilities. I'll get into that. My, my point is like, I'm, I look at this, you know, I'm a customer, I buy a book and I open it up and I look at this and I go, oh, what does he do? He does two hellish morning star attacks, which do 16 force damage and nine necrotic. So that's 25 damage a hit, two attacks, 50 damage, legendary action, he can do a third hellish morning star attack for so he can do 75 damage at challenge rating 19 75 that ain't a lot of damage right that's not a lot of damage and he's low on hit points right so he's got all these other things that he can do or he's got he get all the spells but they talked about how like spells were like spells are not intended to be part of the monster math anymore right so even though he can cast wall of fire and stuff like that he has these other utility options but those aren't those shouldn't affect its challenge rating. In other words, without spells, its challenge rating should still should still be there, right? And I guess like, oh, it's a leader, right? Oh, he's got regen 20. Regen 20 doesn't matter because he's going to take radiant damage. Who's not going to do radiant damage to a devil? Dread, uh, a creature other than the famous six, uh, yeah, DC 22 wisdom save the throw, be frightened of him. Oh, that's so powerful. Frightened and incapacitated. Wow. Except one use of Hero's Feast makes everybody immune to fear. So it has no effect for, for, for most people. Huge paragraph attacks, that's not going to have much of an effect as long as you've got one person that casts Heroes Feast, which is one casting with a single spell. So I think they lowered the hit points on Bale. So generally speaking, the monsters are better. My, my experience kind of poking through it a little bit is the monsters are better. Are they that much better? Are they so much better that it was worth making a new book? I don't think so. We get to kind of my recommendations on this, kind of like my thoughts and recommend. I'm happy I bought it. I'm definitely going to buy it, but I buy everything, right? So if you are on the fence, if you're like, I already have Volo's Guide and I already have Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, do I need to buy this book? No, you do not need to, right? Is it really good? No, right? It's, you know, is it better? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, mostly, right? Mostly better. Some are definitely better. Some are you know, kind of the same. A lot of people just got new ranged attacks. You don't really need to. Is it worth 50 bucks? I mean, it depends on what 50 bucks is worth to you these days, right? And it depends on how much you'll use it. For having the new monsters in DDB on, like, I'm definitely going to use it. So for me, it's definitely worthwhile. But I'll tell you, like, sitting and spending time 
going through it and looking at it, a lot of the monsters that were in Volo's Guide and Morden Kanan's Tomophos were just fine. They really didn't need a lot of work. A lot of the monsters that did need work got a little bit of work, but not enough, in my opinion. I, it, it, it seemed like a lot of energy and a lot of effort that might have been applied towards something else. But, you know, I'm not... Like, I'm happy to have it. I'm happy to have it in Beyond. I'm happy to have it in a physical version. I Even after looking through it, and after all the reviews and everything we saw, I definitely, I'm, I'm definitely fine that I, I definitely would have picked up the book anyway. But I'm, I'm happy to have the newer ones. But also, I'm like, I'm in this industry. I get paid to do monster design for, for, for people. I've got a lot of stuff. Do you need it? No. Is it worth the money? It, you, it's something you really have to ask yourself. But I'll tell you, like the the design philosophies that Wizards has with monsters has improved a little bit, but not enough. It's great that they have aimed towards making monsters more effective with without worrying about the stuff that's like buried in a spellcasting stat block. But I don't think they go far enough, particularly with high level monsters, right? There's 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 first of all, there's a lot of inconsistency in a given challenge rating. I will pick up two examples. The Black Abishai. It's the first monster in the book. If you open the book, the Black Abishai is the first monster in the book, right? It is a challenge seven monster, right? CR seven monster. 58 hit points. Now, it has all kinds of crazy ways to like have advantage all the time and to it's really hard to hit because you can't really see it because it can do this creeping darkness. First of all, creeping darkness is an action. So it has to spend an entire turn just to defend itself so that it isn't killed because it's only 58 hit points at challenge rating seven, right, which is crazy low on hit points. So it has to spend an entire action to do it. Devil's Sight, yes, it can see through its own darkness. Great deal. Shadow Stealth, yes, it can use dim light or darkness. It can take the hide action. So you can it can create a darkness area and then lose itself in its own darkness. So you don't even really know where it is. I get it. But it's still, when it, you think of this as like they are the assassins of the expert assassins and infiltrators. Well, infiltrator, sure. Assassin, not so much, right? Like, who are you going to kill at that level? But anyway, so we, 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 we take a look at that. What I'm going to do here is we're going to go to the game rules monsters and we're going to go to the advanced filters we're going to choose just multiverse right and we're going to pick challenge rating seven so these are all of the challenge rating seven monsters that are in monsters in the multiverse right so you have your black abishai 58 hit points and what do we say eight and nine 17 plus 12 is 29 points that sounds right so it can dish out 29 points of damage at challenge rating seven. Okay. What was another one that I have? Let's look at the Shatterkai Shadow Dancer, right? So also CR7, right? 71 hit points. So a good deal more, more hit points. Shadow Jump, bonus action can teleport around at will, right? Spike Chain makes three Spike Chain attacks. The Spike Chain attack is 10 damage each. So without even the kickers, it's already doing 30 points of damage and suffers one of them, choose one or roll a D6, right? I think you can theoretically choose decay three times. It doesn't say that you can only choose one more than once, which means this guy does 66 plus 30, 96 points of damage at CR7, potentially. Right. And I'm, I don't think I'm cheating. Right. Make uh, makes three spike chain attacks. Can you shadow jump after one? First of all, that means it could shadow jump a bunch. Right. Because it can you can attack shadow jump attack bonus action shadow jump and attack. So it can jump around the battlefield. And as far as I can tell, each time it can throw this necrotic damage one on there. It's not limited by that. You can roll on it, but you can also I think you can choose this one because it says right. Suffer one of the following effects. Choose one. 
Oh, a DC 14 save. So they make a saving throw, right? They, they still get an extra saving throw. You still have to hit. You still have to do a saving throw. So it's a little less consistent. But theoretically, if you fail your save, and I know you're failing, and it's not even half damage on a failed save. But oh my God, right? That is a lot of potential damage. 90 compared to 28 or whatever, 29, right? Let's, let's pick another just for funsies. So look at this Earth Elemental Myrmidon. 127 hit points, right? So where's our Black Abishai again, right? 58 versus 127. Now I know you're balancing like offensive power versus defensive power, but this guy does two maul attacks, does 22 points of damage, not very much, but then has this thunderous strike, makes one maul attack. On, on a hit, the target takes an extra 22 thunder damage and the target must succeed in a DC. So Mirmidon makes one maul attack, boom, and does it. So 33 points of damage. It's still pretty low at CR7, right? And can be, potentially be knocked prone, right? So low on damage, high on hit points, high on AC. I'm cherry picking here and I'm cherry picking a little bit, but like I literally picked out the first monster that's in the book and looked at it and I was like, ah, right. So, you know, there, let's, let's look at another venom troll, right? Venom troll, CR seven, 94 hit points with regen, regen's 10 hit points, uh, one bite and two claws. The bite is seven plus four poison claws are 11 plus four. So that's 28 points, sorry, 30 points of damage with the claw attacks plus uh 41 so it's doing 41 damage and it has a venom spray and regen uh, lower ac but 94 hit points my point now now i i don't need a spreadsheet that just has purely even stats all the way from top to bottom but i definitely feel like when you run these monsters in your game you're going to have a big shift i think that the black abishai hits really low for an assassin cr7 assassin right? I mean, what's a regular assassin? The regular assassin is one challenge rating higher, way more hit points. But oh my God, the amount of damage that the assassin does is nuts, right? It makes two short sword attacks. Each one is 30 points of damage, 60 points of damage on there, plus sneak attack for an extra 14, 74 points of damage, right? That's a regular assassin, not the Black Abishai assassin. I would rather take the assassin stat block and say, oh yeah, it's draconic. It's, an, it's a Black Abishai and it's got, it's got devil stuff. Then use the Black Abishai. I'm picking at here. They, some things they improve. My favorite one, the Winter Eladrin, right? I, I, gave, I gave a lot of crap about the original Winter Eladrin, right? And I was like, you have a Winter Eladrin. It's CR 10, right? Most of his stats. Longbow. It only gets one longbow attack per round, plus four to hit, four piercing damage. This is my favorite one. This is in the old one. This is the old version, not the new one. And I was like, wow, you know, a goblin hits harder than that. Like a CR one eighth goblin or one quarter goblin hits harder than that. No, I get, oh yeah, but it's a sorrowful presence. It's this other stuff, right? But why'd you give it a bow attack if it does so low? Well, they, that's, that's one where they said, we're going to go back and fix it, right? And they did. And so now Ladger makes two longsword or longbow attacks. It replaces one attack with the use of spellcasting. Cool. Very action economic monster, right? It has more stuff that it can do for a CR 10. And look, it's got a longbow attack, plus four to hit, still pretty low to hit. Four piercing plus 13 cold. Okay. And does it twice. So now it's doing... 17 times two is 34 points, right? 34 points of damage if it just used its bow. That's way better than four, right? So, and it's got the frigid rebuke. So, you know, definitely better, right? Like in, in, in this case, the winter legend, definitely better. Is it enough for CR 10? I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, I think I, I, I still look at CR 10s and like, I don't know if that's enough damage. I mean, maybe with the frigid rebuke and everything else, probably the damage comes out to about right. But like plus four to hit's pretty low to hit. For, for a creature this high. And it's because it's attacking, I guess it's using, why is it, is this wrong? 
Longbow, plus four to hit, right? But its dex is plus three and its proficiency is plus seven. Is it not proficient with the longbow? That seems confusing. Shouldn't this be plus seven? I would think that would be plus seven. And if that was, if that was plus seven to hit, let's just check to make sure that that's the way it's in the, the book too. I'm just curious. Just in case something went wrong in D&D Beyond. Winter Eladrin. You know, it's, I'll bet it's under Eladrin Winter. They went through this whole thing about, oh, everything's in alphabetical order, except not really. Winter Eladrin. Yeah, it's wrong in D&D Beyond. Oh, that's interesting. So the actual physical book has longbow, plus seven, I was right, plus seven to hit, seven piercing, plus 13. So obviously they need to do a little bit of work. I'll probably have, you know, somebody, does somebody want to report that? Somebody report that. But yeah, the, the, here, here's the good news. The published physical book, which cannot change, has it correctly. Plus seven to hit, seven piercing, plus 13. So it's doing 40 points of damage with its longbow and still has the frigid rebuke. Definitely better. Okay. So yeah, that's definitely better, right? Definitely, definitely better. So here's where I think the book is really good. If you think about it, if you are brand new to D&D, right? And you were just getting started. You can buy the player's handbook, the dungeon master guide, and the monster manual, right? You buy the three core books. Those books are sound. I've been using them at my table for seven years. I love them. They've got little nitpicky bits, but you're like, there's nothing here. And you go, oh yeah, that's just plain broken. And you're going to have to fix that. There's those books stand well on their own. It's a wonderful version of D&D. It's the best version of D&D that I've played. I'm, uh, it's my favorite version of D&D, those three core books, right? And then you say, okay, we've, we've played those. We've enjoyed them. What's the advanced version of 5e? Right? Well, the advanced version is Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and Monsters of the Multiverse. If you buy that next set of books, you have a ton of subclasses, you have a ton of new races, and you have a ton of new monsters. That takes those three books, you take those six books together, and you have a crazy amount of material to run in your games. A crazy amount of material to run in your games. Fantastic, right? So I think that if you were brand new and you didn't have anything, getting those six books makes 5e last a long time. I definitely think there's more nitpicky stuff, in, especially in Tasha's, than, than normal. But it's really minor stuff, right? I, I, it, overall, I think it's minor stuff. I think, you know, Twilight Cleric and Peace Cleric bug me. Nothing else really bothers me except for those two things. There's like a couple of spells and then there's a couple of subclasses. And I think outside of those, everything is really, really smooth. And, and having those six books works well. So on the idea that Monsters of the Multiverse is essentially the Monster Manual 2. And for new people who don't own Volos and Morden Canons, I, I would definitely then recommend Monsters of the Multiverse, right? If you don't own any other monster books, Monsters of the Multiverse is a fine book to get. Tons of monsters. A lot of them are really cool. You know, I'm nitpicking on little stuff, but really the nitpicks are minor, right? It's a strong, solid book. And I, and I like it very much for that. But then I look at it and I go, okay, what about like third party books, right? What else is coming out? And so there's actually one, one thing I want to mention is there's an article by Paul Hughes did a wonderful look at like, is it better? Right. And he took sort of a selection of monsters. I don't think it was purely random, but he took a selection of monsters from Monsters of the Multiverse and he compared it to his former analysis. Paul has done wonderful analyses of the amount of damage and hit points and things that monsters do. He came up with this thing called the monster manual on a business card that has equations in it that I use regularly. I love, I love the, the, the equations that he came up with really helps. He also mentions my, my favorite, the winter Eladrin. He did a good look. I will link to this article in the show notes. It's worth reading. But what's interesting is Paul Hughes put his money where his mouth is. Paul Hughes wrote the monstrous menagerie for level up 5e. This is N-World's pure 5e 
RPG replacement. You can buy their three core books and run with just those. You don't need it. Or you can combine them with the books that you already have. I have reviewed this on another show. Link are in the show notes below. But I was comparing the two. I was looking at Level Up 5e and comparing it to Monsters of the Multiverse, which isn't a direct comparison. But I was thinking like, well, here's this third party book from somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the math of monsters and the design of monsters compared to Monsters of the Multiverse, where you would think they are spending a lot of time with the math and design of monsters, but they're kind of a little bit all over the place, right? And how do I feel about it? And I'll tell you, like, I picked out certain monsters, like the white. The white was a monster that I feel like is underpowered in 5e. And now I'm picking on the original monster manual because it just does like a pair of attacks. And I looked at the white in this, and I tell you, it's a really strong version of the monster. It has, you know, the long sword, right? It makes a long sword attack, you know, six damage plus three, but then as a bonus action can do a life drain attack. So it does one long sword attack and then a life drain attack. It can also grab somebody, do three damage and then grapple them and restrain them and then really do a life drain on them. This white is a, is a far more interesting white than the one that exists in the monster manual. If you look at the sword wraiths in, if you look at the sword wraiths that are in um, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, let's, let's take a sword wraith warrior, right? It is a CR three, 45 hit points, Undead nature, martial fury, it can make, a, as a bonus action, can make a battle axe or longsword attack, but you have advantage against it, right? And it does eight, oh, let's see, one target does eight slashing damage. What I, what I don't like about it is like, these are undead things, but they attack like any other corporeal monster, right? They don't really do anything interesting. There's no necrotic damage added onto their attacks, nothing like that. So they can make two attacks, but you know what else can do that? A thug at CR one quarter or CR one half, you know? So then I was like, well, what about the wraiths? So if you think about the wraiths that are in level up, and they have, well, so they have Wraith Lords, which are, are, are really interesting. So they don't have the equivalent of like a Sword Wraith. And so it's not direct, a, direct, a direct comparison. But you have this like Wraith Lord, which is a CR 13. This is your equivalent of a Ring Wraith from Lord of the Rings, right? These are like way more powerful than a normal Wraith. But it's got really interesting stuff that it does, right? Paralyzing Terror, Life Drain twice. You know, it can do a corporeal, it can switch in from corporeal and mist form. Attacks with a great sword, poisons people. It does the thing that it did to Frodo, right? You can tell like he took the Ring Wraith from Frodo. So... So this is where things get interesting. Should you get Monsters of the Multiverse or should you get Level Up 5e, the, uh, the Menagerie? And I'll tell you, I as soon as I was doing this analysis, I went over to the Level Up 5e thing and pre-ordered the physical version of the book because I think I might more, I'm more likely to use the physical version of these monsters than I am to use, um, to use Monsters of the Multiverse. I think they're better designed. Right. I think they're better designed. I think one of the reasons is they had Paul Hughes going through and making sure that they're all solid. Right. He has a, he knows what the math is like. He has an equation. He went through it and he made sure it's solid. The giants are emblematic of bad 5e design. The funny thing is, I don't think so. I love the giants. One thing I love the giants, they're straightforward and easy to run. And they hit like freight trains. Right. The fire giant CR9 makes two great sword attacks, 28 damage with its slashing damage. I guarantee you, I have run fire giants numerous times in my games and never have I had the players sitting like this, like I'm bored, right? It's like, God, I hope he doesn't hit me again. If he hits me again, I'm totally down, right? They are frightened of fire giant. Look how small that stat block is. Some people look at that and go, oh, that's a bad thing, right? No, that's a really good thing, right? That's really good. It's got, it's got melee attacks. It's got ranged attacks so that if you, you fly away, right? A lot of monsters don't have the stuff that's here. There are an infinite number of types of great swords. 
There are an infinite number of types of rocks. He grabs on to this giant skull embedded in the rock. He pulls it out. He takes that skull and he hurls it across. The skull goes whirling through this way. Flavor, right? We can change our monsters with flavor. I have seen DMs who say uh, he makes two great sword attacks. He rolls. He gets a 18 to hit. Does an 18 hit? Yeah. Uh, you take 28 points of slashing damage. Uh, he's going to make another attack. Uh, oh my God, right? Flavor, right? Add flavor describe it change it he doesn't fight with a great sword he rips off this tree right he slight uses his hand and slices it all up and then he's got this jagged roots of a tree and he's smashing with a tree there's so much stuff that we can do in flavor that don't that don't need mechanics right so i actually i love fire giants because they're straight where i love all the giants right because they're straightforward and easy to run right i don't i i can i can change anything but I know that a lot of people don't feel that way and they want more advanced. Well, guess what? Advanced level up 5e has that, right? So let's take a look at the giants. I'm curious now. Uh, let's take a look at the, at the giants. Fire giant here, same, same base stats, cold weakness. When fire giant takes cold damage, it's damage reduced by 10. Okay, that's cool. It's not vulnerability. Uh, giant makes two great sword attacks, a plus 11 to hit, 28 slashing damage. If the target is larger or smaller, makes a DC strength, or it can be pushed 10 feet away uh, from the giant and knocked prone. Okay, rock. Wow, that rock is crazy. 42 points of bludgeoning damage. If it's size smaller, it can be knocked. And you can sword sweep. Giant can make a great sword attack against each creature within 10 feet. Yikes. Kick. When, it, when hit by melee attack by a medium or smaller creature the giant can see, it can kick it. So yeah, so here you have a, a, a giant that's got more stuff. And it's not much more complicated. So sure, that's fine. You know, that the giant i'll tell you the, the problems that i have with the monsters that wizards of the coast are putting out are not about a lack of complexity or tactical juiciness it is i want monsters to be effective at their challenge rating across the whole board and if you think about what effectiveness at a challenge rating is look how hard a wolf is right look at the regular wolf and think about what kind of characters are facing a wolf right the wolf is a CR one quarter, right? It does seven damage and ha usually has advantage because of pack tactics and can grant advantage because it can knock someone prone at CR one quarter. I want monsters as dangerous as a wolf is to a level one character when they're 20th level and they're not, right? The monsters, they go higher in that. They're, they're wolf level Wolf level scariness does not exist at higher levels in D&D. That's, that's my problem. But we all have different things. Some people want tactical crunchiness. Some people want, I just want effectiveness. I just want its damage to do. And frankly, I can now start doing it in my head. When it comes to Monsters of the Multiverse, what's my recommendation? If you don't have any, if you don't have Mordekainen's and Volos, it is worth picking up because it's a whole bunch of new monsters with a whole bunch of new design. The design is definitely better. Is the design so good that you, if you have Volos and Mordenkainen's, should you get this? You got to make that choice. I did. I'm not unhappy that I have it. And then the other thing that offers, by the way, there's also a lot of other monster books that have a lot of other design that are also really good too. Check out the books from Cobalt Press. Check out The Monsters Menagerie from Level Up 5e. There's a lot of stuff going on in that book. Let's talk about Murder in the Shielding Peaks. Murder in the Shielding Peaks is uh, by, from my friend Tim Van Dalen. I've, I've reviewed some of his products, or at least one of his products on a previous show. It is a nice, straightforward, small adventure. And actually, this Kickstarter is a good way to get two adventures. You get an adventure that he already has put out, and which we're going to take a quick look at. And uh, you get the adventure for Murder in the Shielding Peaks. What I like about this, this one is going to be a murder investigation adventure. It's very straightforward. I think he offers, does he offer a print on demand? Yes. So uh, the style 
style of this Kickstarter is you pay for the digital copy and you also pay uh, a little bit of a premium to get the ability to get a print-on-demand copy from DriveThruRPG. This is how I had previously done my Kickstarters. I think it's a, an excellent way to go. And this one, it, the, the adventure is a murder mystery. And it's got some really kind of cool stuff. The Aurora Fields, uh, very straightforward stuff. And uh, he shows uh, there is a there is a uh, a preview that I think is showing from the amulet, but we're actually gonna we're, we're gonna take a look at the full one. One thing I asked, so I backed it for both the amulet watch and to get the the amulet at Watcher's Pool and the this one right the the Murder on Shielding Peaks, which means I get two PDFs. I asked Tim, hey, for the show, can I preview? Can you can you send me a copy? And he did. So I did get. I gotta find it here. Oh my god, here it is. I wanted to show the whole thing, so I got a. So I did receive a preview copy of this adventure, but I'm paying for it too. So it's not really a full preview, and I just wanted to show what the style of it is like. So you know, really, really good clean design very traditional design for an adventure i i love the layout i love the style he links everything so if you go through here you can click on any of this stuff including in the adventure itself it has lots of sort of hyperlinks so you can jump back and forth in your pdf uh really good use of spot artwork excellent topography you know very again looks very dnd like very very similar to a lot of other products that we see very readable very usable you know, adventure flowchart. This one's all about crazy cults, dealing with crazy cults, like cult ambush, cultist takeover, lots of fun stuff. Pretty straightforward, typical D&D adventures. So if you're looking for more straightforward, well-designed, typical D&D adventures, one thing I would point out is playtesters, right? A set of playtesters who actually ran through it. I'm a big, that's something that I look for in an adventure. Did somebody else run this and, and give feedback and that feedback changed the adventure? That's kind of a critical thing. Playtesting is really hard to do. Uh, really excellent use of artwork. Uh, uses Dyson style maps, and the maps are all available when you get the download. The Dyson style maps are all in there. So I just I really like straightforward things like this. I think I've used this map before, right? Dyson, you know, again, maps are all coming from the Dyson royalty free maps collection. And there's so in a, in a world where there's so many really giant Kickstarters with huge, you know, $150 Kickstarter premiums for lots of books. It's really nice to find one where like, you know, 12 bucks, I think it's even less than 12 bucks, 12 bucks gets you two adventures with print on demand versions if you wanted to order the print on demand versions. I really dig it. So I would check out uh, Murder at the Shielding Peaks. Link for it is in the show notes below. Let me also paste it here in, in Twitch chat. And... Yeah, so check out Murder in the Shielding Peaks by Tim Van Allen. Really, really cool, uh, really cool, straightforward D&D adventures for your games that you can back that you can back today. Treacherous Traps. Treacherous Traps is a book by Nord Games. It is an excellent book, a big book, 174-page source book. You can buy it in hardcover or you can pick up the PDF. And it is a, if you remember like the, the zaniness of, was it Grimm's Traps? This reminded me of a less zany version of that. So what we have with Treacherous Traps is books full of all different kinds of traps, including traps for different challenge ratings, as well as being able to build your own, building your own traps. Grimtooth. Yeah, Grin, Grintooth was the original book of traps. Uh, there, I, if, there, there are other books that I think focus on traps, but I don't think I've seen any that have the kind of production quality that this book does. Uh, if I had to have only one book of traps, this would be the one that I would pick. It also includes things like puzzles. It includes like other kinds of things that you would that you might throw into your game. 
but but really it's focused on traps excellent artwork excellent design very cool stuff i you know i i was i was just flipping through it when i was going there i love when it has like little diagrams of things again man i just i dig i dig i love this artwork because it's like hey look at the little tripwire and like barbarian's gonna walk right into it and yeah oh, no watch out random lists man you can't go wrong with random lists right have a good if you want to quick quickly whip up a trap to throw into your game and some big ones too like you get you get down into the like the higher the higher challenge runs right run for your life five foot wide corridor lever at the end of the, has a uh, lever at the entrance close gate or door lies at the other end when the lever is pulled the barrier opens and the wall begins to contract once the walls meet the door closes and the lever in the wall goes trigger effect barrier opens crushes everybody once the creature's space, they take D10. If the surface is still moving, the creature is restrained, takes 2D10, third round, fourth D10. Fourth round, the barriers meet in the middle and retract. I presume that means you're mashed into potatoes. So, violent cage, sea of embers, acidic ceilings, right? So, very cool stuff. And, and a book like this for lazy DMing is really, really handy because I don't want to design these kinds of things, right? So if I decide, you know what I would really love is is a more detailed trap, then I then, then this is definitely a good way to go. You know, if I want a more detailed trap that I don't want to design, it is like a monster manual full of traps. So check this book out, Treacherous Traps by Nord Games. Really, really cool book. I'm very glad to have it. I have a physical version sitting there over on my shelf, but also really have, happy to have the digital version and physical version alike. So I would, I would check them out. Check out Treacherous Traps by, by Nord Games. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month I put up a thread for Sly Flourish patrons to ask a question. Anybody can put up a question that's related to D&D. I answer all the questions there on the Patreon and I select some of those questions to talk about on the show here. So let's jump right in. PhD20 says, how would you encourage more player ingenuity at the table? For example, encouraging players to come up with and try their own clever ideas, strategies, or methods instead of relying solely on their character sheet and die rolls. So we were kind of talking about this on the monster side, right? That like the, just because a monster stat block says that you have that you throw rocks and you swing a sword doesn't mean you can't elaborate on that. It doesn't mean you can't even change it, right? But you can certainly reflavor it different ways. You want to think in the story. The mechanics are describing the story, not the other way around, right? I'm sorry. The story is describing the mechanics. The mechanics support the story, not the other way around. So in the same way, definitely players can look at their character sheet and say, these are the only things I can do, right? The only things I can do are the things that are my character sheet. And we obviously want to get them past that. They can do any, they can try anything. Some things might be impossible. Some things are just an ability check, right? And the difficulties will change and which ability they use. And if they're proficient and things like that, that can do it. That can do it. So there's, we want them to be thinking about that. But how do we get them to kind of step outside of that character sheet and do it? It's a really good question. And the answer, I think, is off, one, one possible answer that has worked for me is offering examples, right? That when we describe the situation to them, instead of sitting back and putting our hands on our chest and looking at them and waiting for them to come up with something, we can offer up like, hey, these are three things your characters might see that might help here, right? And offer a few options, offer two, at least two or three different kinds of things that they might do. It sounds like you're leading them on. Most likely they're going to come up with new ones based on what you say, because what you're describing that they might be able to do, well, you might be able to climb up that rock wall on the, uh, on the left, or you think you, th you think you see a spot where you could hurl up a grappling hook if you actually wanted to grapple your way up. And of course you, there's always magic, right? 
when you mention things like that, they start to think that the way, oh yeah, okay. But a lot of times like they don't understand the thing that you're describing. This falls into a couple of Sly Flourish, Mike Shea-ish rules here, right? One of them is players are only understanding about half of what you're saying, right? So they really don't understand the situation that you're describing. You think they do and you think, oh, it's obvious that you should do these things. But sometimes they're just not getting it because you're describing things and they are, you, they don't see it, right? They don't understand it. So they don't, they don't have it. And two is that tell, don't show, right? And, and their, their characters know more than they do. So tell them the things that their characters might know. Tell them the things that their characters might see or might what options might be available to the characters that the players don't recognize. It sounds like you're leading the players on about telling them what to do with their characters, but not if you're just offering options, right? And, and those options, the nice thing is it's they, they, they have a couple of options, but they can come up with new ones. And as you describe the options of things that they can do from the point of view of what their character is capable of, they might come up with new ones, right? And it's those new ones that all of you might hang on to. And that's where the game goes in directions you didn't, you didn't describe. So I would offer kind of three things. One, players are only understanding about half of what you're telling them. Two, the characters know more than the players do. So tell the players the things that their characters know. And three, tell them, don't show them. Don't try to hide and obfuscate stuff. Go ahead and tell them the things that they're going to be able to do. So those are kind of three things that I think can help sort of encourage players, you know, ingenuity. And, you know, it's a, a bit much if you're like, well, you know, I don't make my players smarter. Well, it's like they don't understand what you're talking about, right? They're smart people. They just don't understand what they're, what they're talking about. Murtok says, do you use the concept of the dungeon churn? We're going to combine, I think, three questions together because these all kind of hit the same sort of thing. Do you use the concept of the dungeon turn in your games? How would you implement this in 5e? Jack OS says, how would you manage time during a dungeon crawl? I think there are rules uh, to tell how long it takes to move a square in a dungeon, but that is so tedious to do. How would you manage with spells and torches to go out when spells and torches go out? Anthony M says, how do you describe the size and direction to players when running a cave system such as a dungeon? Artificial structures are easy due to angles and clarity of defined rooms, but very regular caves where one cave bleeds into another seem to be harder. For example, look at level two, uh, look at level two of the steading of the hill giant chief. This all wraps around the big question of how do you run a dungeon? And it's something that I'm spending some time thinking about and trying to get my head around and understanding. Um, so to answer some specific things here, because dungeon, it, there seems to be, this is interesting because there seems to be a topic that's sort of fired up in the industry. I've, I've read Reddit posts about it. I've seen people lament it on various forums. I've seen people that kind of talk about it. I've seen people make like accusatory things like Dungeons and Dragons doesn't tell you how to run a dungeon, right? And it's like, how did we manage for seven years, right? If it didn't tell us how to do it, how do we do it? There's all kinds of like discussions of this. And the answer could be, they don't do it the way I would like them to do it fair right that's a fair assessment do they not do it at all no they tell you how to run the game and the game includes dungeons i guess i'll do some some general thoughts which is like you should run a dungeon however the pace of your game desires right that like you know a dungeon is just like a, a dungeon is a situation like any other situation and you can run the dungeon the same way that you would run any other situation which is you you want to look at what the pacing of it is are, are things hard are things easy do does it matter it do, do rations matter do torches matter i argue that the fifth edition of DD treats characters far more in a far more heroic light than dungeon crawling systems of old you have cantrips that can create light, which means you have essentially an unlimited source of light. So if you have certain character classes that can create light at will with almost no effect, I, I, I don't think, is there a, 
you need a firefly or phosphorescent moss. But the general assumption on on something like this is like you, you can find fireflies, right? You don't need, you know, I don't know if you were like, oh, I'm going to track every firefly you have. I think some people want a crunchier, grittier version of a dungeon crawl. And if you do, I recommend something like Five Torches Deep, which you can get on, on DriveThruRPG. There are others, that one comes to mind, but there are definitely other sort of newer designed role-playing games that have a crunchier aspect. Old School Essentials has a whole Dungeon Crawl system. Five Torches Deep has a whole one. And there are, there are other games, there are other systems as well that have that sort of lower level, grittier, tracking your torches, cr- tracking your rations kind of thing. I don't think that 5e really fits into that category. I don't think the kind of stories that we expect 5e to tell have to do with running out of food while you're in a cave or have to do with running out of light when you're in a cave. Some people want that kind of adventure. If you look at Out of the Abyss, Out of the Abyss definitely had some of that stuff like you were in the caves you didn't have spell components you're gonna have to go find your phosphorescent moss if you wanted to fire up your light spells right food and water was hard to come by and you can could you can put a system in there you can also just describe it right you can also just use flavor for for how hard or easy something is I don't think that that's particularly where the interesting part of the game lies. It de- but it depends on what kind of scenario you're running. And some people definitely want that more sort of crunchy system. But I can tell you for a lot of people that can get pretty tedious. And I've run some dungeon crawls where you're doing like square-based movement and checking the floor in front of you with a 10-foot pole and watching out for this stuff. And, and it can get really tedious. So it's one of those things where depending on the kind of story you want to run, like, you know, Again, I work with the characters. I say, I'll, I'll ask them like, okay, you know, a lot of times when I'm running a dungeon crawl, I'll say, what's your marching order? Who's in front? And I'll, and I'll mention things like, by the way, only the two people that are in front are going to be able to use their perception checks to really see what's going on because the people in the back are in the way, right? So that means you probably want somebody with a good perception check. And then they're always worried about, yeah, but what about their stealth? And right, the next thing I do is say, "What's your lighting? Are you are you are you using a light source or you're not using a light source?" And they and sometimes if they're not familiar with me, they say, "I have dark vision." And I go, "Okay, understand. In dark vision, you are at disadvantage on perception checks, right?" And then they almost always go, "Okay, I'm going to turn a light on, right?" And then you say, "Okay, you can turn a light on, but you're not going to be very stealthy, right?" So there's that. You know, you make some of those discussions up front, and then you have that movement. Okay, I expect it to go that way. I know what their passive perceptions are, and then I address them and say, "Hey, it looks like you see some rocks in front of you that just appear to be like they've been moved recently, even though the rest of the cave hasn't." Oh, I want to investigate those. Okay, so I don't worry about the turns. I don't worry about counting turns. I don't worry about counting squares. I don't usually worry about counting uh, rations and things like that. I don't think that that's the interesting part of where the story lies. This whole topic, however, of running a dungeon is something that I want to spend a lot more time thinking about. I want to talk to people about it. I think I've already started doing a little bit of tweet, Twitter research to get people's like, what's the hardest part about running dungeons? What part do you get stuck on? I've got some details of that that I'm starting to put together. And, and I want to think more about it. I don't, I don't think having a rigid system is, is correct. And I think that people feel like 5e that D&D that the core books should have a rigid system and they're upset that it doesn't and I think if it had one you wouldn't like it <laughs> right so you know because people you know oh I, I that's not exactly what I wanted because I wanted this right and so they could have offered some optional rules like definitely in the back of the dungeon master's guide they could have done it could, but could have should have would have right like it's been out for seven years what we have what we have there are other systems where you can sort of apply this kind of thing but I think they sort of fundamentally change the nature that 5e has of heroic versus gritty fantasy right i just don't think that 
worrying about your light sources and the number of arrows that you have in your quiver and how much your rations, unless that's the interesting part of the game, unless that's sort of wired into the story, I don't think you really have to track it. I think you can, I think you can kind of do it by, do it by, do it through the narrative. I've been talking a lot about doing it through the narrative, right? So uh, Murtok and Jacko, I think that uh, manage time during a dungeon crawl. I don't really manage time. There are rules about like how long it takes you, 10 minutes and things like that. There are other people who have put together some rules. But I don't really worry about the time that much. I don't worry about how long their spells last. I just go with the narrative. Like, you know, and sometimes they'll say, hey, is my spell still going on? And I'll be like, it's been long enough that it's probably not still going on. You don't You don't need to be real. I don't think you need, I, I don't need to be real rigid with it. I, I've been running lots of games and I haven't been rigid with it. And I see, it seems to work out. The other interesting thing is there's lots of people who really don't like running a dungeon crawl. And I love running them, but I don't think I run them the same way. So that's where I need to think about, well, what am I doing that makes me like them so much? And my players don't mind them because I do them all the time and they keep coming back. So I don't think I'm running it significantly. And I'm not doing anything weird, I don't think. I'm just running it like I run the rest of the game. They go into a room. I describe the situation. I describe what's going on. They have goals. They have things that they want to do. It's the same as if I'm running any part of any other game. And I think that's the weird thing is like running a dungeon isn't really fundamentally different than running exploration outside or walking through a city or doing anything else in our games, right? That it's all, what's the current situation? what what do the characters want to do is any of that hard and require any kind of checks and then adjudicate the results it's the same as the the rest of the rules for the rest of the game describing size and direction to players when running a cave that's really complicated which i think is anthony's question so anthony says how do you describe the size and direction to players when running a cave artificial structures are easy due to the angles and clearly defined rooms but irregular caves where one cave bleeds into another seem to be much harder the answer to me is a diagram right showing parts of it and this gets into how do you map a dungeon how do you map it in a way that people can see and i don't think there's a fantastic pure solution for this i think drawing it out on a piece of paper can work i think drawing it out on a on a battle on a dry erase battle map can work i think using a digital any kind of digital thing if you can show them a monitor or use a tablet then you can use fog of war and stuff like that i think you can do it that way from from the the polls and surveys that I've done, lots of people have lots of different mapping solutions. And I haven't found any one of them that everybody universally likes. And not, not even close, right? Lots of people have different solutions. They all kind of like the solutions that they have. There's about, I did a poll on this and I forget, there's a, a good number of people who feel like they don't have a great solution. I am in that, in, in that category. I use everything from a three by five card where I quickly sketch something to elaborate Dwarven Forge 3D terrain displays. And and I, I use uh, a variety of different digital tools. And I haven't found any of them are like, this is the solution. This is the one that does it for me. So it's a real tough problem. But generally speaking, the answer is you got to have some kind of visual. So find a visual. But that can be just you drawing it on a piece of paper. Right. So Anthony, I hope that answers your question. Jasmine E says, I will start Wild Beyond the Witchlight next week with a group of three players. Do you see any specific challenges or opportunities for a small group in this adventure? Yes. So a couple, a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is it's going to go faster than you think. The fewer players you have, the faster your game goes, which means you're going to have to prep more for a given session. If you if you're running a four hour game with three people, you're going to get a lot more done than if you run a four hour game with six. Right. It's just when you when you reduce the number of players, the whole game moves faster. So that means you're going to have to prep more. I was talking to a friend of mine who was running it, I think, for two or three players. And she was like, wow, we got through so much. And it was to the point where she burned out her prep. Right. She she had she had prepped a whole bunch of stuff, but then ate it all up. Right. So so that you know, that that is one thing. The other thing is like, you, you know, if there are combat encounters, 
always be looking at the action economy. If there, if you have a fewer number of players, reduce the number of monsters. Generally speaking, you can do that and you're fine. Just if there's five monsters, reduce it to four or three. You know, keep the action economy relatively balanced based on that encounter. And if you're fighting a really big monster, lower its hit points, lower its number of attacks, lower the damage that it's doing. You know, and you'll get a feel for it. Get an idea of the kind of capabilities that they have. The other thing you can do is a companion character, right? You can you can drop in another character that one of the players controls that you have four. Keep it simple, right? I, I kind of like just making a regular character. I know there's companion rules in uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Anything, or uh, Ca Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, for example. Uh, you could also use an NPC stat block. I think it's pretty easy to just let somebody build another character. Just ask that they make it simple. Don't let them play like a spellcaster with a ton of spells. You know, like choose like a really, a, a relatively simple character build if you can. Ideally, like a champion fighter right keep keep things simple that that's another way of extending the action economy on the player side is give them a companion character but you don't have to three you can run with three just reduce the number of monsters which light is a perfect adventure for this because which light doesn't have a lot of combat in it anyway it doesn't have a lot of forced combat right so you, generally speaking you would just if there are times they go into the woods and they're fighting a giant snake or maybe instead of two giant snakes maybe it's just one giant snake so that's my recommendation there. Watch the action economy and expect that you're going to have a lot more material, especially like one-on-one -on -one games. You can play a significant amount of D&D &D in 90 minutes in a one-on-one -on -one game. I, I, I have experience in this. Cloaker says, looking for lazy DM ways to apply tension to 5e games more effectively through resource management procurement and to illustrate the increased threat of distant and lengthy travel, not just to the dungeon, but back home as well. The world is a hostile place. Basically, I want Oregon Trail while, it keep, while keeping it short and sweet, but, the treacherous but with treacherous agency. How can you raise the stakes to reinforce that adventuring is really dangerous on its own merits apart from combat? And how would you go about representing a 5e world where resource management matters? I should have bundled this question with the ones up above about, about running dungeons too, because it's kind of the same thing, which is I don't feel like D&D, &D, because you have spells like Create Food and Water... Because you have spells like light, uh, a lot of the things that might be resource intensive aren't, right? It's a magical, it's a, it's a magical world. And in a magical world, a lot of things that are, I mean, death isn't even a, a, a major proponent. You can get a, what is it? It's like a third level spell can bring someone back from the dead, right? So... I, I'm I'm never one of the people to say, oh, you should try a different system then, right? Like you can probably get it to work. I don't really have a system for it. And it's not really the kind of, it's not really the kind of game that I typically run because I, I don't feel like it fits into the heroic fantasy nature of, of 5e. I think you're going to have a hard time kind of describing that. But, you know, I'll always go with flavor, right? You can, you can describe it, right? That you can say like, you know, you've been traveling through this area. Rest has been hard to come by. Your spells are burned out. And you're, you know, you've been trying to make your way through here and it's been really hard. Food is scarce. Water is scarce. You know, things have been difficult. Like you can describe it for them. You know, I, I, I don't, again, I don't feel like you always have to have a mechanic around it. I'm not a big fan. And I think you'll find that your players aren't going to be a big fan of the like roll a constitution check to see if you get a level of exhaustion. Like, first of all, exhaustion just kind of sucks. Right. And second of all, like, it's just a pure downward beat. Are you really wanting to push downward beats like that? You know, I think like if you're traveling across hell or you're traveling across some other terrible land, you, you could kind of do that. But like, you know, you, a lot of that sort of resource management procurement and the dangers that come from it 
can be, you know, can, can be overburdensome. Now I, I did it. So like, if you want to, um, um, there's there are a couple of, of adventures that have done it. Tomb of Annihilation, when you're crossing across Chult, has a whole lot about how you get resources, how do you find directions that you're going, stuff like that. The Lazy DM's Companion has a whole section about exploration, about the different roles that people can take in different exploration and what they can get. I think that those are kind of fun. Like, what are, who's, who's kind of watching out for monsters? Who's making sure that your provisions are okay and that things are good there? Who's making sure that you're following the trail that you want to follow? And then other people that are helping people with those things to give them essentially advantage on those checks. And then you kind of determine how hard they are i think that that's a fine way to go too and that's probably how i would handle it you know you can get you know when when you have if you if you're going across a particular area where you think like resource management is a, is a thing what are the roles that you see that the characters can take to help accomplish that bit of travel what roles do they have tracking trailblazing quartermastering you know those kinds of things and then what are the difficulties that they're going to run into while they're doing that and then how do they come across those difficulties and what you'll find is sometimes they say like my character is able to hunt for food because i'm a ranger because this is my favorite terrain i can hunt for food and always find the food that we need and you're like no skill check needed right you could just do it someone else might say you know, I don't know, whatever. They, 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 some some people might use spells. Like, we don't need to worry about food because I have create food and water. So every day I'll be casting create food and water we'll be eating from. Okay, cool. That covers it. So if they have things that their characters can do to cover it, don't penalize them by saying, well, you can't do it here, right? Because I wanted you to roll a skill check. So, but but generally I think like it, it that kind of thing that sort of travel and travel in a treacherous place can be hard because it's just downward beats. It's like the Frodo and Sam scenes at the end of Lord of the Rings. Like I don't even watch them anymore, right? I'm just like, oh God, watching the two of them like wandering through the, you know, wandering through and the music is sad and it's like, oh God, skip, right? Like I get it. It's tiring, right? You've been traveling a long time and Frodo's waving at bugs in his face that aren't even there. Like, oh, I get it, right? It's just downward beat after downward beat after downward beat. And you're like, I want to, I want to get to the, you know, the, the good part. So keep, keep, keep track of your beats is, is probably my recommendation. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Got a lot of topics, talked a lot about a lot of different things. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did and you want to help me out, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, picking up any of my books or subscribing to my videos right here on YouTube. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.